In this episode of Shaping the Future, I'm speaking with former UK Government Chief Science Advisor Sir David King. Sir David has recently set up the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, CCAG, to respond with agility to the real-time climate crisis. The first report focuses on the Arctic as a key regulator of global climate stability and more recently, chaotic disruption. Sir David discusses the mantra they are trying to get into the mainstream consciousness of climate action, reduce, remove and repair. The message is clear that climate is now the main issue threatening our civilization across the globe. We are now crossing tipping points and the time for rapid scaled up action is now. Sir David also suggests the creation of a UN Security Council for climate change to deal specifically with the international efforts of nations and regions to tackle arising issues. This connects to my interview next week with NATO and US government security advisor on climate change, Chad Briggs. Next week I will also be talking to Dr Sean Fitzgerald, OBE, Director of the Centre for Climate Repair in Cambridge, about how we need to flip our building infrastructure from a massive carbon source to carbon sink. This includes existing buildings and the colossal amount that needs to be built with resilience around the world to weather the tide of climate adversity. Thank you for listening to Shaping the Future. You can see the full archive of podcast interviews and reporting from the last five COPs at GenCC. Please subscribe to the podcast on any of the main channels and please do consider backing my work on Patreon. Okay, so David, it's good to speak to you today. The newly formed Climate Crisis Advisory Group has released its first report paper focusing on the instability of the Arctic even calling it a ground zero that is connected to all the identified tipping elements in the climate system. How can this one region be so critical to sway the heavyweight policymakers who will be deciding the outcome of COP26 in Glasgow? What the report that we published yesterday deals with is the full range of climate weather conditions in the Northern Hemisphere in particular. And uh, we're, we're looking, for example, at floods that seem unrelated. These could be just extreme weather events occurring accidentally at the same time. Floods in places like New York, in London, in Germany, in Holland and Belgium. We're looking at very hot weather in California, Oregon, and of course, British Columbia and Canada, where a record high temperature was uh, uh, found, 49.6 degrees centigrade, five degrees above the, the previous highest temperature ever recorded in Canada. And that is quite simply a temperature rise above the most extreme earlier on that could not be explained without climate change. And then we went more deeply into it and looked at what was following up on the melting of ice over the Arctic Sea, which leaves the Arctic Sea during the polar summer, it's just a three month period, centered around June 21st, when the sun is shining on that sea 24 hours a day. During the polar summer now, the temperature of the seawater increases dramatically, but more than that, so does the atmosphere above it. And this means that right in the middle of the North Pole region, we have a hot area. So when we, we look at the impact of the hot area over the rest of the Arctic Circle region and beyond, we find that the jet stream which is normally pretty well circular around the, uh, the North Pole area, around the, the entire Arctic Circle area, 
has become massively distorted. And the distortion shows that the uh, hot area in the, the middle of the Arctic Sea area and the land masses around it is, is pushing the cold air further south. And in places that cold air gets down as far as Texas in America, it's a, it's a very extreme distortion. So the lowest temperatures ever recorded in Texas have been observed in the last three years, minus 12 and minus 16 degrees centigrade. But on either side of that, you've got the jet stream. And the net result is that hot air comes up from the equatorial region into that region on either side of that big dip of cold air. And so we get these extreme extremes of temperature and on the New York side, we can see that where the jet stream is, the instability in the weather system is such that extreme uh, rainfall is occurring in that region. So that, that analysis has been taken backwards in time, and we can use the distortion of the jet stream to explain further extreme weather events that have occurred over the last five years. But this particular one I'm talking about now is called the Omega event because the uh, um, jet stream is now shaped like the Greek letter Omega. So I, I think what we are keen to point out is that what happens in the Arctic Circle region doesn't stay in the Arctic Circle region. It impacts on the entire, at the moment, the Northern Hemisphere. But Johan Rockström, who's a member of the team and is very interested in these events that can be described as tipping points, says, right, the, the Arctic Circle region tipping point appears to have been passed so that we're getting this occurring more and more frequently going forward in time and more extensively. But that impacts on a whole bunch of other tipping points going all the way down to the Antarctic. The point, I suppose, that really this dwells on is that the entire Earth weather system is one holistic system. You impact on it up here and it has a big effect down there. In recent years, we were always anticipating these events. And now you've got so many to actually choose from, which are causing real suffering. And scientists in the past have talked about sort of exponential change, which again is when these impacts, the heat, etc., starts accelerating. Is this what we're seeing now in terms of every year seems a bit worse than before and a bit more destructive. And are these impacts at risk of outpacing our action? Absolutely. So not exactly every year we will have ups and downs. We, we had a fairly quiet year in 2020. 2019 was a year with uh, many extreme weather events. I think what we are expecting is that these events can only get more challenging to humanity going forward in time. And I, I think, I mean, the most important thing is, yes, we have not managed this. The, the climate scientists on the team, they are members who are busy writing the IPCC reports. Uh, so they, these are people fully embedded in the IPCC system. And they were saying, we have mismanaged the modeling of climate change events. What is happening today was predicted to happen in about 70 years time. Right, so the, the, the big feedback occurring up in the Arctic Circle region, largely 
the development of areas of the Arctic Sea exposed to the polar summer was not accounted for in the modeling. And so the situation now is a lot worse than was previously imagined. What we are using as, if you like, our mantra is we must have deep and rapid emissions reduction. It goes without saying. We are emitting 51 billion tons of greenhouse gases altogether, carbon dioxide, methane, NOx, into the atmosphere a year. And we've got to bring that down as close to zero as possible and as quickly as possible. But we also need a second action, which is to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Clearly, we're already at an unstable point for the climate systems of the world. Sitting up there in the Arctic Circle region is Greenland. Greenland is sitting in this warm air, and it's now losing ice more and more rapidly year on year. And of course, when all of Greenland ice has melted, global sea levels will rise by seven and a half meters, global average sea level rise. Uh, now that may take a long time, but is it a long time in terms of our civilization? Is it a long time in terms of what the impact of a mere half a meter sea level rise will do to global cities like Calcutta, Jakarta, London? You know, we, we, we are not prepared for what we're currently seeing and we need to take all of these actions and then we need to buy time and buying time means we need to learn how to keep ice cover over the arctic sea during the polar summer okay and there's a few things i mean reducing emissions just seems like the most obvious policy and yet it's met so much resistance even as far back as the rio earth summit 30 years ago president bush senior said the american way of life is not up for negotiation but that has really been true of all of us in the wealthy developed world we've had that attitude do you think that now we we have to move i mean we, we know we have to move but are the leaders are these cop 26 summits really fit for purpose are, are they going to deliver the goods on the reduction side because i think that's the meant to be the low-hanging fruit i'm going to answer your question in a slightly roundabout way the setting up of the climate crisis advisory group was the attempt I was making to see that we had an agile capability to respond to current situations. And bingo, we set up the group and we have these extreme weather events around the Northern Hemisphere. It gave us a wonderful opportunity to show what we can do in real time. The United Nations process is very rigorous and I admire the way they do it, but it is actually the opposite. It's not an agile process. So we will produce monthly reports of this kind going into the future, but the IPCC simply can't do that. It has to get the ratification of all of the member states, etc. The same applies to UNFCCC and hence your question about COP26. The processes of COP26 are so laborious. Imagine the situation where you have 197 countries represented, where on average, each country is represented by 20 officials, which means that we have nearly 4,000 people trying to negotiate a deal over a two-week period. And believe me, what actually happens, particularly in the first week when there seems to be no hurry anywhere, people make wonderful speeches repeating what they've been saying for the last 10 years. Uh, there, there's no sense of urgency 
in the procedure by which the, the operation takes place. In the United Nations, there is also a Security Council. And frankly, I believe that, and this is a, a new idea, that we need a Security Council for Climate Change, a United Nations-based Security Council, which should be led by a person of real stature who's recognized around the world to be totally committed to action on climate change, but also in a fair and equitable way. If we had that sort of operation, a Security Council with perhaps no more than 20 members, who could meet without having to have a big following gathering of 10,000 or 30,000 people. I think we could manage it. But what I'm really saying is, Nick, we've got a crisis on our hands. We've got a crisis on our hands. The, the subheading of, of this uh, report is a global state of emergency. And we're not using these words lightly. I believe we've got five years to put in place everything that needs to be done this includes reduced emissions re, uh, removing greenhouse gases that are already there repairing the arctic circle region we we need to get on and find how we can manage it it's got to be done carefully but we need to do it quickly we need universities to put their research effort in we need finance to to operate this it needs to be treated as a global emergency because our future as a civilization depends on rapid response to the situation. Do you think because impacts are happening everywhere and the vulnerable, not just vulnerable nations, which is important, but also vulnerable regions in terms of, you talk about the Arctic Circle, 70% of that is coastline or territory is Russian territory. And then you've got Europe and you've got Canada. Is there a really with what you're proposing, a new opportunity for a diplomatic body that can actually lead us into the future and hopefully provide a bit of more stability than we've had in the last century, for example. The flip side of that is that, that we get more into a conflict situation with resource depletion, which is obviously what we want to avoid. I mean, I, I, I do want to say this. At the moment, we, we're potentially in quite a strong place compared with the past 25 years because it's not just britain leading the way and frankly nick it was blair that was leading the way worldwide for action on climate change for many years eight years but we never had support from the united states in anything like a leadership role now we do have a president in the united states who has appointed john kerry a man who i know very well and who i admire as his climate negotiator and xie Zenoir in china was appointed by the president of China on the same day that Kerry announced, it was announced as the climate change negotiator for America. And that's important because we all know, we saw it in place, that these two people, Kerry and Xie, get on very well. They, they are social friends, they get on very well. And this is an important part of reaching an agreement. We, we need trust between negotiators. The position, however, of the British is now rather, rather difficult because we're sending a, a Navy ship into the China seas at the moment. We are at odds with China. 
I, I think the timing of this, frankly, just couldn't be worse. It's not as if that Navy ship is being sent to take over the islands in the, the China seas. It's meant to be, it seems, an action saying, China, we're on the other side. We're not, we're not really with you on this. Now, I, I think given the challenge that we're talking about, we need to lay aside these differences because frankly, China working with the United States, working with the European Union, and I know they're all three talking together, can find a way forward and the rest of the world would probably follow. Now, would it, would it manage it given the current situation? Um, I believe I'm, I believe that the president of the COP, uh, Alex Sharma, is not privy to these discussions precisely because of the position of the British government over China. So, it, you know, we, we're, we're not understanding the imperative around action on climate change, which means lay aside these differences. I just want to come back to the report quickly. You talk about repair and remove. Are there greenhouse gas removal technologies on the table that you think can go to scale? Yes, I think, however, I've got to interpret what the question means by on the table. Potential. Yes. So we've done a fairly detailed analysis of all of the possible greenhouse gas removal technologies that could be used both for carbon dioxide and for methane. And I would say that there are probably three of these that can be scaled up to the sort of level that's required. The level I'm talking about would be 30 to 40 billion tons of greenhouse gases removed a year, right? And I, I believe that given the state of the oceans, by which I mean the fact that 300 years ago, there were probably 100 or 500 times the number of whales in the oceans that we have now, and we mined the whales for their blubber. That was a great energy source for the world. And we, we virtually removed the whale population. It's down to 1% of where it was, or even maybe 0.2% of where it was before. I believe we need to focus on two things on the oceans. One is to return the ocean population to something like where it was two or 300 years ago build up both the fish stock in the in the oceans and build up the mammals whales and so on dolphins what this does is potentially mean we step in to imitate natural processes to achieve this and once we've done that i don't believe we have to continue doing that because the the mammals in the ocean are deep feeders but they always come to the surface to defecate and this is a process of bringing minerals back up into the surface and uh, fertile material and we recreate the areas of phytoplankton in the surface uh, built up by sunlight and and then we can just let nature run its way but at the same time we recreate very large greenhouse gas sinks in the ocean these big phytoplankton areas that are formed maybe 50 square kilometers when desert sand is blown into the atlantic a big green area formed. And I, I think it therefore has two benefits. We, we return the fish stock, we recreate a large mammal population in the oceans, which then has the ability to sustain itself and the whole ocean flora and fauna. I think that to me is the most promising. How many 
billion tons a year could it remove? It could be 20, 30 billion tons, just this one technique. It all depends on what the ability is for the oceans to recover and over what period of time. Okay. You've mentioned in the past marine cloud brightening as a method for refreezing the Arctic. Given we're, we're talking about 14 million square kilometers of a dynamic and changeable climate. Is this really feasible? It seems like a bigger than mammoth task. So I, I think the first thing I want to say in response to that is, frankly, if we don't manage this, we are cooked, right? It's, it's very difficult to see how we're going to get away from this massive change to the global weather system. Let, let me just dwell on that point for a moment. One of the members of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, group is Tira Mustanen, who's a professor and a representative of the Sami people up in northern Finland. I spoke to him six, seven weeks ago. Temperature was minus 30 degrees centigrade. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, plus 31. What he's saying is this transformation has just completely removed the, the long span of time that the Sami people have lived under the ice conditions and they've learned how to make a living there. They depend heavily on the reindeer, etc. But they cannot survive if this continues. Now these indigenous communities are critical to our future because they understand in detail what is happening. So I've, I've sort of gone off track a bit and your, your question was more how do we refree the Arctic and I, I'm just saying it's something we have to do. So marine cloud brightening, yes, the Arctic Sea is a vast area. And what, what we want to do is try to cover that whole area with white cloud for three months in the year, with bright white cloud that will reflect the sunshine away, so that the previous year's growth of ice over the Arctic Sea during the winter uh, doesn't melt. And then every year we hope to grow yet another layer during the winter and retain it. What is the effort required? Well, at the moment we're estimating that we would need around 1,000 vessels in the ocean around the Arctic Circle region. Not all of these vessels would be operating all the time. We would need data from the Met Office to tell us the direction of the wind, direction of cloud cover, and then operate to turn these clouds, however black they are, into white clouds. We know we can do that using seawater. And so spraying seawater into the air and using the current of air to take the particles of salt up above the clouds is a fairly doable process. Can we do it at scale is your question. And yes, we feel that governments of the world, not least Britain, but perhaps in Europe, particularly the Netherlands, will be prepared to fund the operation. And in fact, I don't doubt it, because managing sea level rise of the order of half a meter, meter, two meters, is going to be extremely challenging for the major cities sitting on coastlines around the world. So I think the final cost has got to be met by governments putting their hands in their pockets. Okay, and I know um, this is a bit of a hot potato, but other scientists believe we should be developing stratospheric aerosol injection as a sort of last insurance attempt, if you like, to, to do this. Should we not be researching this too? Yes. 
So my, my position and the position of the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge is that we should not deny experimenters the opportunity to find out whether they can manage implanting sulfates into the stratosphere and do it safely uh, and manage to cool the climate. I believe the experiments are critically important, but at the same time, I would actually ask the United Nations to put a moratorium on that being run out at scale until the demand is absolutely clear. I'm very fond of a, of a book that was published by Kim Stanley Robinson, the Ministry for the Future. And in that book, he sets the scene in 2026 beginning when there's a great heat wave across northern India and about a million people die. And frankly, this is on the cards because if the temperature goes over 42 degrees centigrade for three days and you have no access to air conditioning, it's difficult to imagine how you get rid of your body heat and so death is almost inevitable. Um, and the Indian government then on its own begins to do a stratospheric aerosol injection in order to cool the uh, the Indian area. Now, that was not in the, the novel. It's not sanctioned by the United Nations, but the Indian government just goes ahead and does it. It has the capability, it has the, the rockets, it can do it. And that's the point about stratospheric aerosol injection. It, it looks as if any country could do it that has the capability of getting into space. But frankly, the amount of sulfate that has to be put up into the stratosphere is really quite vast. And so once again, is the scale-up operation feasible? To finish on, because every year we seem to have, we've been locked in a rhetoric um, echo chamber, it seems, for years, and people are pretty fed up, especially people who are engaged in climate. At the end of the Rio Earth Summit, summit in 92, Botswana's President Maziri said that the time for words has passed. And we know from history that when President Franklin Roosevelt turned the US industrial machine into a war production machine, the tide did start to turn against the Axis powers. How close are we now, do you think, to that game-changing mindset shift when the world truly comes together and implements this reduce, remove, repair modus operandi? I think we're there right now. We're there right now. I don't, I don't think we can delay. Uh, even years going past, two, three years is too much. We really need to move extremely quickly. The report of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group sets out the nature of the challenge, and it's not meant to be a scary report. It's meant to be a report that addresses governments around the world, businesses, financial uh, operations, and says this is a climate emergency and we all need to act quickly. Okay, well, that's a great place to finish. So thank you very much. Okay, Nick, thank you. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.